I was extremely honored to be invited by friends at CSTA of NYC, that's Computer Science Teachers Association, to produce a live episode of the show on the topic, Tech and Ethics. We called the event Code of Ethics, and my thanks in particular to the kind and hardworking folks in the audiovisual department at Microsoft New York who hosted the event. They were super helpful. Anil Dash is the CEO of Glitch, formerly Fog Creek Software, and host of Vox Media's new show on tech and society called Function, and longtime advocate for a more socially-minded technology sector, its engineers, leadership, and the policy that structures, or doesn't, decisions about what gets made. Natasha Singer is a reporter for the New York Times business section who covers tech and has a special focus on accountability. And Brenda is a New York City public school student who dreams of becoming a software engineer. She's a first-generation Dominican-American and passionate about women in tech. The conversation with this panel was a journey into some of the most serious issues that all of us should be grappling with during Computer Science Education Week. Thousands of events, big and small, are being logged globally, tying into CS education. But what could be more important than a step back to think about over the course of this conversation we refer to as tech's downstream effects? I'll send some new No Such Thing laptop stickers to folks who share the episode with hashtag CSEdWeek on Twitter this week. That's hashtag CSEdWeek on Twitter. If you also tag No Such Thing Podcast, I'll get in touch to arrange the drop. Enjoy the conversation and my tremendous thanks once again to Anil, Brenda, and Natasha. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Happy CS Education Week, everybody. How'd you do? So many friendly faces. Uh, anyone else feel really good about having a sort of civil discourse among friendly faces uh, at this point in time? You don't have to answer. I feel it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, my huge thanks to CSTA. Uh, this is a wonderful treat for me to be here uh, with my three panelists. Uh, I'm not going to waste time introducing them because usually when you show up to a meetup, you've Googled them already. Um, if you don't know uh, these two, you should put their names into Google. You won't find a picture of um, Natasha, and that's because she's a reporter and she really, every, all of us should respect her privacy in case you're tweeting and taking pictures, uh, just either uh, black out or leave out her face. Um, one of my panelists today, uh, Brenda Encarnacion, is a senior in high school and uh, possibly a little nervous to be on her first uh, big panel of this kind. So you should just look at her and smile um, and reassure, yeah, things like that, like some, some guns, I think, uh, will help <laughs> finger, her finger guns. feel finger guns <laughs> yeah, are the only ones that show up at this meetup. Um, so thank you all. Uh, I am really excited to be here and I want to jump in. I think this is one of the most important conversations that's going to happen uh, for Computer Science Education Week. Um, and it's a delight to have the three of you. Um, Natasha Singer, extremely prolific. Uh, fantastic reporter who I've gotten to spend a couple of weeks with uh, online in, uh, and uh, just amazing, amazing work. You should all check her out. Anil, who we're going to, uh, you probably, uh, you may know Anil. You may know uh, he likes Prince. Um, you may know one or two other things, but hopefully we'll dig into a little bit of your history and why you're so excited about um, 
this conversation, among other things, in the context of uh, your gig and all that's happening at Glitch. Brenda Encarnacion, a senior at Hudson High School for Learning Technologies uh, in Chelsea. You should all check out that uh, pretty incredible school. And uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you here, Brenda, is because uh, one of the things we sort of founded, I founded the podcast on, is the idea that we need to be um, more cognizant of young people's voice uh, at this moment in time and making sure that if we're talking about education and technology, uh, we can't do it in the bubble of adults who are making decisions about education and technology. Um, so I am so grateful to have you here. And I want to give you an opportunity to answer your first question among all of these smiley, super friendly people. Um, so Brenda, you are thinking about uh, and actively applying to college. Uh, you want to be a software engineer. Yes. Tell me what excites you most about the idea of becoming a technologist, creator, engineer in your future. Okay, so what excites me the most about being an engineer is... Uh, so it's basically being able to see my passion like turn into reality. Ever since I was little in the Dominican Republic, I wanted to pursue a career in STEM. And it was kind of difficult because there wasn't a lot of resources and uh, opportunities for females specifically. So it would be great to make my dream come true in this country and also be able to be in an environment where I know I'll be happy in and passionate about and just in general to create something for people to impact the world and help those in need. The idea of, of having you uh, involved makes me really hopeful. So that wasn't so bad, right? No. Right. <laughs> so, um, Anil, I mentioned people know um, maybe a, a few things about you, what your uh, avatar on Twitter looks like. What, um, what a lot of people don't know about you is your history in uh, both Silicon Valley and here in New York. Sure. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about tonight is, is what parts of your professional history you feel uh, contribute most to your views and practices now as it relates to being socially conscious with what you build uh, at Glitch? So, you know, a little bit of context. I, I, I run a small uh, company called Glitch, and we have a platform called Glitch that people code on and create together. And uh, But I've been, you know, more or less running startups and tech companies for about 20 years, uh, building uh, tools for people to create, collaborate, and share together. And um, one of the first companies I worked at that was um, that had a sort of substantial impact was building early um, blogging and social media tools. And so we, we built the tools that, you know, helped create a lot of the first blogs, a lot of the first social networks. One of the um, communities that we uh, maintained or managed, some of you may be a sufficient vintage to recall, uh, was called LiveJournal. Uh, and LiveJournal was the first, uh, really the, probably the first social network to reach 10 million users on the internet. Um, and, you know, I think back to 2004, 2005, uh, when we wrangled with uh, issues of Tumblr is screwing up right now today. So we've learned no lessons in the interceding decade and a half, uh, much to my chagrin. Uh, and I take some some responsibility and some blame for the fact that we do keep repeating the same problems over and over and over on all these different social networks. And, you know, in the particular case of galvanizing moments for me, you know, I was, I was excited just to be in tech. You know what I mean? I had, I feel like you, know, like I was coding, you know, in high school and I thought this is, amazing. I can make something like this didn't exist. And I, I typed this stuff and now it exists. And that felt like 
the most empowering thing in the world, um, especially being, you know, the child of immigrants and that, um, my entire education is that I went to uh, public school in rural Pennsylvania where I grew up and that's it. And to, to use that as a springboard. And this is, you know, I, why I think I'm so appreciative of the work you all do as educators is that was the springboard for me to say, I can take these pieces I have and make something. And so I found personally this idea that coding, that technology in general was empowering and expressive and very personal and could um, open doors for me in a way that, you know, my parents, for all they've given me, they felt that's the thing we don't know how to do. We don't know how to get you into that industry or put you there. And that I was able to, to get there was really exciting. And so I came in, I think, as wide-eyed and Pollyannish as anybody uh, when I entered the tech industry. And I thought, I, I'm, you know, we can go and you can make the, the, the narrative that we tell young people. Yeah. Um, you know, back then it was Bill Gates. Now it's Mark Zuckerberg, maybe. But the story was, you can go and build this company and, and build this tech and you're going to be successful and you're going to get to you know do whatever you want. And I had um, a, a, good, a lot of good fortune early on. Like I was able to work on products that people wanted to use and at companies that people liked and went to Silicon Valley, went to San Francisco with a startup that was growing. And, you know, our founders were on the covers of magazines and, you know, doing TED Talks, like all that stuff that, that is part of the, you know, that sort of movie montage of like, this is what success looks like in tech. And we built these tools and then I sort of looked around and, you know, there's an interesting position, particularly for Asian American men, where we're overrepresented in tech, like wildly. Um, so that at first was novel for me, right? I grew up in a town where we were basically the only family of color. Um, and so, you know, it was extraordinarily isolating. Like I remember going back years later and being like, oh, I think the reason I felt like I didn't fit in was we spoke a language, different language at home and wore different clothes and ate different food and had a different religion, listened to different music and had different values. And maybe that was why I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, and so, you know, it was an epiphany. Uh, and to go to a place where there were people that I, I felt had something in common with and had some common context was exciting. So I'm like, here's a place I can be. Here's a tools that we can make that we were so optimistic about. Like we're going to give social media and, and, you know, the ability to publish to anyone. And they're going to, you know, use their voices and say, you know, underheard voices are going to be heard. You know, this is very idealistic, optimistic thing. And as you may know, uh, the social web didn't turn out that way entirely. There were some things that we had not anticipated. All the worst of what we see on the internet now, there were hints of, or the first instances of back then, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, um, some of the people who are the cornerstones of the worst harassment communities online today were doing it then. They've had you know, 15 years to refine mm. their techniques for targeting people. Some of the, you know, the, the worst behavior, some of the, the patterns of how people would, you know, um, victimize online were all there. And in some ways I felt like the, you know, the scales fell from my eyes, like my idealism about what the industry was, what the implications were, the technologies I had built were, um, and why, and I realized my peers collaborating with me to create these tools and the people using the tools did not look like the people in culture that I was drawn to as creators that inspired me. They did not look like the neighborhood I lived in. I was in New York. You know, it's like, mm. sure doesn't look like New York city to me online or in these tech companies. And that disconnect became when I started to see the negative effects, I saw these things were directly related 
if everybody's not in the room and anticipating the ways these tools could be used or misused, then these tools will have, I, you know, I felt really, really, ne- I didn't actually anticipate sufficiently negative, but the, like they would have very negative impacts on the world. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I was in San Francisco, we were doing this startup, it was you know, doing quite well, and I left. Uh, I came back here to New York, I left the company, I started working in nonprofits, I started working on, on policy about how tech impacts the world. Um, and I started speaking up, you know, and just talking about the issues with inclusion and, um, and sort of the lack of ethical grounding in what we were creating. And, um, and it was terrifying. I thought I had destroyed my career. Yeah. You know, and I, but I just felt like I, well, I had already, I mean, the first time I, you know, do you know what doxing is? It's when they publish private information, like your home address and things. First time I was doxed was on a platform I had built. And the, the guy who did it is a very now well-known figure uh, in terms of, you've read his name in, in the newspapers about being horrible to people online. And um, what he did was not in violation technically of the terms of service that I had drafted. Uh, and I had been that person saying, you know, oh, you know, you got to give people a platform. You got you to give them a chance. And um, I had been very eager you know, when we had people that met each other and like the comments on their blog and like they would like, you know, really their ideas would connect and then they maybe met each other and then the people would like go off and get married and you'd be like, wow, look, this is great. Like social media is great. And they're able to form these connections. And we would tell those stories all the time. Look at this amazing thing that happened. And then we would hear about people, you know, hounded from their homes or threatened at their jobs because of what happened in social media. Well, that's not our fault. It's just a neutral tool. Yeah. And they can't both be true. And then a lot of us had that epiphany and started waving the flags and started saying like the, the, whether it was the business models around surveillance based advertising, or it was the, you know, poor design of these tools that allowed abuses and and misuse to happen, or whether it was the economic injustice of the same creative communities, special, especially underrepresented vulnerable people that were fueling the creative energy on these platforms were not the people profiting from it, nor were the people that were hired at these companies it didn't fit with the values I'd been raised with. It didn't fit with what I felt I was supposed to be doing in the world. And, and I, I just felt like, um, well, I just remember saying to people like, we will be judged very harshly. Uh, and I feel like maybe that's the moment we're in. Yeah. Thank you for that. Sorry. That might've been more answered than you wanted. (laughs) That That was more, more, um, that was perfect. Um, great context. Uh, Natasha, I mentioned that I have been spending a lot of time with your work over the last couple of weeks, which I'm really, really grateful for. One of the things that when I started out um, starting to produce this show, uh, one of the things I wanted to accomplish, I didn't know the degree to which I wanted to accomplish it, but was to learn in the open. Um, And it's been such a breath of fresh air to to sort of uh, find your work and, and really dig into it. So thank you for the work. Um, you, one of the stories, uh, recently that I, I read starts with, um, two sentences. The medical profession has an ethic. First, do no harm. Silicon Valley has an ethos. Build it first, ask forgiveness later. So, um, let's pretend that some of us in this room, uh, I'll, I'll put myself up, uh, are not as connected to the news cycles around, tech and business, uh, as you are. Um, 
I would challenge anybody to be as connected as Natasha is. But um, one of the things I was hoping you would do is set some context for us about, um, let's pretend we're not as connected as you are. And um, let's take the last month or two and think about some of the stories in your mind that describe for people the sort of breadth of this issue that we're talking about. When we talked before this session, um, I had we had talked about the title and ethics being in it, and, and you at one point had even said, like, I don't really like to use the word ethics in some ways um, because it's so broad. So tell us what stories um, you're paying attention to that might illustrate for all of us just how, how big this topic is. Well, first, just to give a little context, I'm a tech reporter in the New York Times business section. And so I'm writing about the intersection of technology, society, and business. And I do a kind of journalism that's called accountability journalism. And that means your job is to explain to readers how large institutions work, whether those institutions are companies or nonprofits or government agencies, explain how those institutions work and hold them accountable. Um, And so it's an interesting job because up until this year, there's been a lot of very kind of frothy tech journalism, right? Like I call I call it the like, how cool is that school of tech mm. journalism? <laughs> Look at this new rose-colored iPhone, right? And um, that's not what I do. And so I just want to tell you what my lens is. It's not that like I think the glass is empty. It's just I think we have to ask the questions. And so I think this year has been a kind of watershed in accountability for the tech industry. And um, I think we really have to date it back to the Cambridge Analytica mm. stories, which actually had been out there a couple of years earlier, but this year, you know, we're dug into more deeply and right. Cambridge Analytica is the voter profiling company that um, harvested the data of millions and millions of Facebook users, largely because Facebook had a policy that allowed apps to not just get users data, but their friends data. Yeah. And so that was a structural issue that allowed that to happen. And I think another key uh, thing we've been looking at this year a lot is election interference. And, you know, we focused a lot on Russian election interference, foreign intellectual election interference. But if you look at what's been happening in the European Union, um, the Vote Leave campaign in the UK really harnessed Facebook to push a lot of things that weren't true to try to get voters to vote to leave the European Union. Mm. And that's not foreign election interference. That's just a domestic campaign using Facebook the way it was intended to really influence an outcome with a lot of fake news. And then I think we think about um, ethnic violence in Myanmar, where, you know, factions in the country used Facebook to foment ethnic hatred and violence. And if you haven't seen the Frontline documentary on Facebook, it's two parts, really worth seeing because They talked to the people who went to Facebook years earlier, raising the alarm about the spread of ethnic hatred. And Facebook just did not move quickly enough Mm. and at scale enough um, to make a difference in what was happening in a significant way. And um, I think also about YouTube this year, where there have been a lot of stories about how the algorithm becomes more intensifying no matter what you're looking at. So if you start out looking at a lot of Trump videos, it very quickly starts to show you white supremacy videos. And if you look at Hillary and Bernie videos, it very quickly starts to show you videos about like secret government conspiracies. 
And so I think about how um, there is this whole argument in the tech industry that the platforms are built for good. And look at all these bad people who've mm. come along and hijacked our technology and used it for evil. But I think in some of these cases, we're actually seeing that the technology is designed to do this. And so um, if we just take the election interference example, I did a story about Russian election interference because um, the Senate asked Facebook to give them all the ads that were bought uh, by the Internet Research Agency, which is a Kremlin-linked group. And so then um, the Senate published those and it had all the targeting information on the back. And, you know, in Facebook, you can target ads to people based on what they like and what they do and where they've been and what they've clicked on. And so you can target ads at people who are interested in Malcolm X or in the Museum of the Confederacy. And so there was this account set up by uh, this Kremlin link group, and it was aimed at African-Americans. And it spent months doing a lot of black pride posts like there was this photo of Beyonce's dancers and it said like black girl, beautiful, and it got spread everywhere and it seemed really positive. And then on the day of the presidential elections two years ago, um, they ran something that said, um, neither Trump nor Hillary is for you. Nobody represents black people. Don't go vote. And all of those ads were targeted to people who liked Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, um, Afro-Caribbean pop, uh, Civil War history, right? So they used Facebook's system the way it was intended to be used, right? You surveil people, you find out what they're like, you aim ads at them, you try to influence them. And so this was an ad that obviously attempted to suppress the vote. Um, and you could say, oh, these evil people did something evil with our system, but your system is designed to influence people. It's a surveillance-based influence system. So I think that um, overall, the news this year is um, that there are systemic flaws in major tech platforms and superficial changes are not going to get at the fact that there are consequences. And, you know, I think a lot like, again, my lens is I used to cover the pharmaceutical industry. And um, which is why when you started with that, right, in medicine, it's first do no harm. You have to figure out what the consequences are before you're going to act. As you know, with medicine, with drugs, right, you do a clinical trial. You figure out what the benefits are. You figure out what the problems are, which we call side effects, right? It's going to make a certain amount of people mm. nauseous. It's going to give a certain amount of people hives. And it goes on the label and you know what they are. But there are other things that happen a year out, two years out, right? And those you are spend the a lot of time on the beach, in bathtubs. That's what that's what I think of when I think of the pharmaceutical the when they when they read all of those side effects. Right, 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 right. But the thing is that a couple of years later, when those drugs actually get out in the population, you find out that a pain reliever is going to cause cancer in a certain number of people, or it's going to cause strokes in yeah. a certain number of people. Right, and that's not your drug being used for a different purpose. And then you have to figure out, okay, can we figure out how to fix this, or do we have to take the drug off the market? But nobody thinks oh, like, we're not responsible for this. We're just a neutral platform, right? And, um, you know, because I've interviewed Anil and he's always saying technology is not neutral. I think that is the theme of this year, that finally both the public and the tech industry writ large woke up to that. Mm. I have lots of questions. Yeah. Um, 
we could we could have an episode about each one of those uh, stories individually. Um, technology is not neutral. I, I kind of want to um, stay with that, Neil, and and uh, I'm going to quote you from a. Uh, uh, you have, as we mentioned earlier, and at the end of the show, I want to plug your new show, which um, is uh, going to be, I think, an incredible um, addition to the landscape uh, and media that can actually influence um, and and carry that ethos of technology not being neutral. Um, Two years ago, you were on uh, Krista Tippett on being, it is one of, if you haven't heard it, um, it's one of my absolute favorite uh, podcast episodes on this topic. Um, I tried very hard not to duplicate any of her amazing questions so that you'll go listen to that and not feel like you've heard it twice. Um, You said at one point, this is a long quote, but I'm just going to read the end. You said, uh, you can get a top of the line the highest credential computer science degree from the most august institution with essentially having had zero ethics training. And that is, in fact, the most likely path to getting funded as a successful startup in Silicon Valley. So in the last couple of years, we have, uh, thanks to a lot of people in this room, we have uh, a new computer science education framework for K-12 that includes the impacts of computing. Uh, the Association for Computing Machinery reconstituted its code of ethics, which I've read in full. Have you guys read it in full? It's uh, scintillating. It's scintillating. <laughs> uh, put it near your bedside if you have trouble sleeping. But it's good. It's good. It's good. It is good. Um, and we have these two years of uh, stories. You know, I... I just wonder, since that appearance on, on Krista Tippett, whether you feel like there's been any progress. Um, you know, there's the stuff I mentioned here, but from the industry side, how are you feeling? Um, you know, it, it, there's been progress and there's been a reg- regression, right? I think a, a couple interesting things have happened. I do think it's the last two years. I don't think, I mean, obviously what's happening politically in the election in 2016 and things were inflection points, but it, I think it was bubbling before that. I, I look at um, Susan Fowler at Uber, who wrote a memo about, um, you know, the injustices of the working conditions for her and for other women at the company that I think was a, um, extraordinarily well executed. I mean, there's this terrible burden of having to be a perfect victim in order to be heard, but, um, but she was willing to do that and be that, um, to be both a symbol and an advocate and was very effective in, in, leading to the the CEO founder, co-founder of, of Uber being removed as CEO. And, you know, Travis being pushed out as CEO was uh, astonishing to me. If you'd have asked me if that was possible, I would not have believed it before it happened. And, you know, there were some vulnerabilities as to why he was able to be pushed out. You know, it goes to how they were funded and what the economics and the structure of the company is. But at a, at a fundamental level, it was a watershed moment for accountability in the industry that a a worker could talk about working conditions being unjust, and that would be enough for there to be a measure of accountability for the person with whom the buck stops. So that was extraordinary and inspiring. I look similarly, and I think it's no coincidence so many of these movements are, are led by women in the industry. Lee Honeywell um, led an effort, and she's an um, engineer and, and, a, and a product designer who's worked at um, a number of very prominent tech companies. Um, she helped lead as part of the tech solidarity movement, the Never Again Tech Pledge, uh, which in January of last year led 
um, at least hundreds, maybe thousands of workers across many of the biggest tech companies and many of those most important tech companies of any size um, to pledge out to build a, you know, a religious registry or to participate in creating, um, you know, the, the main concern was a Muslim registry, but any sort of similar um, technologies that would be, you know, usable by the government to, to violate people's civil rights. That was the first organized effort across Silicon Valley of workers across companies putting ethical boundaries on their work and holding their employers accountable. It's, again, it's no coincidence that um, these things are led by women and that they are uh, uh, really grounded in labor movement. But that was extraordinary to me. I'd never seen anything like it. I did not think we would see anything like that for many, many years to come, let alone preemptively before the harm was done. It wasn't reactive to somebody's already built the Muslim registry, although arguably that has been done, but there was like, this sort of like, this hasn't happened yet and let's try to prevent it. Uh, that was striking. And, and similar to, you know, the point that you had quoted, you know, from the earlier conversation about there isn't, there hadn't been formal ethics training in most computer science programs. Again, it's possible to get a complete computer science degree from very reputable institutions and be in the, in the heart of the tech industry in Silicon Valley and have no grounding whatsoever in the labor movement, right? You would not learn the first thing. Like you would literally not know what a union is, yeah. right? And I grew up, my mom was a union worker for 25 years. Like we got the, you know, the, the newsletters on, on, on the table every, every week. And, and so like this, like you could have that level of illiteracy. So the idea of like, we should maybe organize and pay some attention to what's happening. And that had never come to bear, even though arguably coders are the most empowered workers in the history of the world, Right. They've got like free massages at work and we're going to give you candy <laughs> and you can take the shuttle to work and you've got Wi-Fi on the way to work. You know, like they're just like, we'll go overboard and you have a brand new laptop and we'll like, if you sign up for our startup, we'll give you a Tesla. Like all this wild stuff is happening. And they're like, yeah, have you ever talked to your coworkers about like working conditions for the people that have the least power in your organization? And they're like, nope, what's that? Yep. And so to see that inflection point, you know, so, so, you know, Susan sort of has her memo come out, I think February last year. Right before that was the Never Again Tech Pledge in January of last year. You fast forward to this year with the Google walkout, uh, you know, 20,000 employees around the world in one, you know, one of the most important companies in the industry uh, taking a stand on, again, how the most vulnerable employees and, and, you know, especially women in that organization are treated and where resources go. Are they going to pay $90 million to people who abuse or $90 million to people who don't? And um, that was extraordinary. And Google sat up and took notice. Now, again, maybe they haven't responded enough. They haven't reacted enough. Each of those things is in a milestone I would have found unimaginable two years ago. I would not have conceived it. I, I, I had written off that was even possible. Yeah. And um, I attribute it to activists and educators, 100%. It's people that, especially there, there was an influx of people emboldened in the industry who had come from outside of tech, yeah. right? And they had been... Uh, in these other worlds, they had been educated in these other disciplines, whether it was labor or ethics or <laughs> civics, like fundamentals, right? Social studies, like those, those were the things that I think gave them that grounding. Um, but a corner has been turned, right? There is a, the, the slightest trace of fear for a CEO of Uber, a CEO of Google. Um, I don't think yet a CEO of Facebook, but, you know, maybe a COO. Right. And so um, that that gives me hope amidst now part of what caused those those catalyzing moments to happen is the harms are so much worse 
I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, I'd be talking about, your data is going to be leaked. I was not talking about, you know, genocide in Myanmar as this is the gal- what's going to take to galvanize this. And I think that was something that people were banging the drum about it, but it hadn't, that was arguably not yet the you know, practice uh, two or three years ago. Um, and that the reaction was so slow, even when the situation was so extreme. And I mean, there's Sri Lanka, there's, I mean, there's places all over the world. Right? I and mean, we talk about one example, but there are many. Um, it can't possibly have to come to that before there's a reckoning. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't, I can't say like, here's a hopeful sign because the, the harms are so egregious, but I think, you know, or even just undermining democracy, undermining trust in media, undermining civic institutions, like there are such egregious harms that I can't say on that. Great. Good news. Like this output yeah. came, but, um, but something, something could cause people to organize. Something could cause even the most powerful leaders of the biggest companies to be accountable. Um, something can get. Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress and doing his, you know, weird robotic <laughs> responses to things. And I think that's a good, it was weird, right? You all saw that? I'm not imagining that, right? It's really weird. Um, and uh, I think that was such a, I think those things give me some hope that there is a, a measure of accountability to be had. And I think that that's um, that along with the fact that there are like young creators, new creators, people making things, that see that doesn't have to be the only way to do things. Like you're not have you don't have to be like these guys. I think that's really important. Yeah, Brenda, I know you hate this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, do you think engineers are responsible for deciding what's right and wrong when they're <laughs> thinking about what they create? Um, so, in my perspective, I believe that it's not the engineers' fault. They're not responsible. I feel like as a user, because everyone like uh, has different perspectives over something and. Uh, something could be either like harmful or beneficial to someone. So it depends how the user decides to use it. And yeah. You were also telling me earlier about um, there's also sales teams and there are all these other things that, that go into it, which I think is a really important um, observation as well, that, that there are, uh, there are whole companies who are responsible for some of these decisions in addition to engineers. Um. Thank you for answering. Uh-huh. <laughs> Natasha, um, so some of your stories, I, I read many, many. Um, so so uh, some of these story titles are fantastic. Um, in a, you know, if you're into doom and gloom. Um, <laughs> weaponized ad technology. Facebook's moneymaker gets a critical eye. Google is teaching children how to act online. Is this the best role model? Did you vote? Now your friends may know. Um, and, and on and on. It goes, it goes on. So um, you told me, I thought this was so important, that when you ask questions about do- downstream consequences to CEOs and tech startup folks, um, tech leaders of all kinds, uh, that you're often met with a blank stare when it comes to um, this sort of, uh, you know, moral <laughs> basics. Um, my question is, what are some of the questions that you ask the industry in order to gauge whether or not they're considering it? And the reason that I ask you this is because I think that with educators in the room, whether this becomes uh, a part of their rubric um, and, uh, you know, as they're working with students or for those of us, 
you know, who may not be educators, if they are questions that we should all be asking ourselves. Um, these are questions that you've honed over a really long period of time. And I'm just curious, what are the ones that, um, that really are telling to you about how well they're thinking about these issues? Um, yeah, the, the question I've honed over years of asking them <laughs> is, what's up with that? <laughs> so I'll give you an example, right? It's a good one. Facebook, you are now scanning every single user's post for suicide risk. Every post, every comment, every video. This is a mental health scan. You're scanning over a billion people a month. You have no evidence that this thing is beneficial. You have not published any evidence that shows that it's not more harmful than good. What is up with that? <laughs> right? Like, and the answer is, nobody's ever asked us that question before. We don't understand this question. And we don't think this is a valid question. And in fact, if you, if you ask, what's the evidence that your intervention would have any positive impact? Like, what's the proof that what they do would make the situation any better? Get stonewalled. And what's interesting is, obviously, you're a journalist and you represent an institution that is about accountability for them. But I say this is a partner. Right? I go in there and they're like, yeah, it's, this guy's got a software company and we work with them. And if you ask the same question, we get the same answer. So that is the answer. That's not the answer for you. That is the answer. So I think that what's really complicated is the intent is often good. People are committing suicide on Facebook Live. Facebook wants to stop that. It's not just a PR move. Yeah. And if somebody is really imminently about to do something, they have a duty to intervene, right? It's just that this is actually medicine. When you are thinking about whether you're going to commit somebody to a psychiatric facility because they're at risk of self-harm, one of the questions is, are you having suicidal thoughts? This is a question the doctor asks before deciding whether to commit you. Now Facebook is asking this about every single post of every single user in the United States and scoring it with an algorithm. And like one of the things they said was, well, we're not practicing medicine. We're just trying to help. Mm. But actually, this is medicine. And so in medicine, we try to prove that the benefits outweigh the harms. And we try to do that on a small population and prove it works before deploying it to a billion people. And so um, I think that the question of whether you're accountable for what you make is the key question. And I understand what Brenda was saying, but I also think if we think about a car, cars were first made without seatbelts and without airbags. And if you think, oh, well, it's only the consumer who's responsible, I actually think we have to think the consumer couldn't have thought up the seatbelts, right? So I think the engineers also play a role. It's not just the sales team or the marketers or the consumers. It's not just whether the consumers are going to use it for ill or for good. Yeah. It's what is the thing itself and what are the possible consequences of the thing itself? And I'll give you two kind of examples that are much smaller than the suicide AI. Um, one is that Google has this new uh, game called Interland to teach students how to navigate the internet. And... Um, Basically, it sort of tries to teach you digital citizenship and what Google calls privacy. And um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all in, like, in the Google colors, green and red and so on. And basically, if you 
do the lessons and play this game, what it teaches you is like, there are bad people out there, you know, who are going to steal your parents' credit card number. So, you know, don't give that away. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things you don't want to tell everybody. And here's how you choose to tell like your family or your friends, but not strangers. Um, But in this explanation of privacy, there's nothing about the companies collecting your stuff, right? And what they might do with it and cybersecurity. And when I asked Google about it, they were like, well, we can't be self-referential. And I'm like, yeah, but like, (laughs) here you are, a company under FTC consent decree for privacy violations who has to have privacy audits every year for the next 20 years to comply, who's just had to shut down Google Plus because of privacy problems, who's just been busted for collecting people's location data, even though they told you you could turn off location history, now saying they're going to teach privacy to public school kids. And I was like, what's up with that? And they were like, well, the PTA is our partner. And I'm like, great, you pay the PTA. You are a sponsor. And so it's not that I don't think there's nothing good about this game, but I think like we have to go back and say, is this um, an independent entity that we want to teach public school kids about privacy? Or do we want a more neutral entity to define privacy more largely? Um, Because otherwise these kids are only going to think that it's like, oh, my friends, the like identity thieves, like the hackers, like, but in fact, the biggest malefactors this year in this area have been Facebook, YouTube, and so on. And so- um, YouTube, which is owned by Google. Yes. So that's- kind of one example. And then just on a smaller scale, I wrote an article about apps that were trying to get out the vote. One was called Vote With Me, and the other one was called, um, and, ah, Vote With Me, and what's the other one? It'll come to me. Anyway. It's got a vote in the name. Vote.org or something. Nope. Anyway. I'll I'll put a link to it. Outvote. Sorry, it's Outvote and Vote With Me. Okay. So both well-intentioned, right? Like a lot of people just don't register, just don't vote. And basically what you do is you download the app, you allow it to access your contacts, and lickety-split, it looks at voter record and comes back and shows you which of your friends are registered, which of your friends voted in the last elections, so, you know, all the presidential elections and um, the midterms, and if they are um, registered as a Republican or a Democrat, it tells you. Yeah, I love some of the faces. What's up with that, right? Is that what you're thinking? What's up? They're right. So, um, The thing is that voting records are public and you can buy them from the state and political parties buy these voter records. But most people don't know that. And like if you download your phone list, you're also going to find out how your dentist or your plumber or whoever, you know, whether they vote or not. And so that's part of it. But we also tested these apps. Right. Um, My colleague, who's a data security reporter, you know, um, used the system to like look at the traffic. Right. And so what they were sending from your address book was. Your friend's name, your friend's nickname, the address, um, the birthday, the um, place they worked, a whole bunch of other stuff, their social media handle. And so I called the company's and I was like, okay, um, in order to like match a voter registration, you usually need a name and a birthday or a zip code, but you don't need all this other stuff. So what's up with that? And the first company was like, oh, I have no idea. Like, I'm mm-hmm. going to fix this. And the second company was like, well, you know, it's just off-the-shelf software, and that's what it's doing. And I called back, and I was like, is that what you want to say? And they were like, no, no, we'll fix it, right? However, one of those companies also sent stuff back by accident. 
And you wouldn't have seen this if you were a regular consumer, but we were testing it. And what it sent back was um, there are these companies that profile voters and give you scores. And so it gave each person a score for different things. So it was like Trump resistance score, 98%. Women's health score, 86%. Gun ownership, you know, 22%. And basically they were using a third party to match the voter files and they were getting all this data back and by accident they were sending it on. Um, and um, I call back and I'm like, what's up with that, right? So basically one of the first questions is like, what are your privacy policies and what are your security policies and what's the difference between what you're saying and what you're actually doing? And then the second thing is, you know, what are the downstream consequences? So by being able to look up people's voting, um, you know, you're not looking up how they voted, right? You can just look up, did they vote in a certain election and are they registered Republican or Democrat? But like, you could dox people, right? You can imagine mm -hmm. some group trying to like look at all the records of journalists and see if they ever registered for a political party, you know, which we're not allowed to have political affiliations if you're at a big news organization. But you can imagine um, some group doing that and then alleging bias, which might not be true. Um, and so I went back to the companies and I said, I get that it's completely legal that voting records are public and everybody can buy them. But it's a huge change for society if we can look up folks. And because I didn't want to dox my friends and family, like I made a fake contact list. You know, we have these test phones and I put in like famous politicians. Um, I put in like all the Trumps. Um, I put in Charles Grassley, the senator from Iowa on the Judiciary Committee. I put in all these people. But I also put in like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and uh, Alyssa Milano. And basically it came back and said that um, Ocasio-Cortez hadn't um, voted in um, 2016 and 2014. And Alyssa Milano, who was like on YouTube and like Twitter trying to get out the vote, hadn't voted either. And so then I had to call Alyssa Milano's spokesperson and say, you know, she's saying get out the vote, but she hasn't voted. And, and the answer was, you know, she just had a baby and she was in extreme postpartum depression. And I was like, and now I violated somebody's privacy, right? So you can see, um, and I chose people who were public figures, right? Because I right. didn't want to violate any privacy. So even when you're trying to do good, right? And that's one of the other things companies say to me, like, but we're doing good. How come you're asking us these questions? I'm like, I'm not questioning your intention of doing good. What I'm questioning is the actual consequences on the ground of your thing. Well, we're just a neutral platform. One of the things I loved about that story was was the uh, love, in an ironic way, <laughs> was that your your friends and neighbors all come up in a list with and and those who had had voted regularly had like emojis with hearts in the eyes and uh, the others were and it's it was just uh, yeah sorry I left that that out troubling. so like it categorized people as like good folks who voted and they were like all with these different emojis that were like. Yeah. Yeah. And if they didn't vote, there was like this sad emoji with like a mm. <laughs> <laughs> But again, like it seems <laughs> it seems like a farce. Um, I don't think it's farce. I think it's what we do on social media is like we rate yeah. people. Yes. And so this is automatically dividing people into the good voters and the bad voters. Yeah. I think there's the design of the thing and there's the design around the thing, right? And and what happens with everybody who creates products is there is 
the core of the technology and what can be in the classic example. I don't think people use this as much in tech as they used to, but they used to say, you know, you can give somebody a hammer and they can build a house or they can like bludgeon somebody and mm-hmm. it's the same tool. And so tools are neutral. Um, but arguably, well, those are clearly things that people can do. So yes, these are traits of a hammer. Um, but um, a tech company is not a company that makes hammers. A tech company is a company that makes hammers and makes the store, the hardware store and makes the flyers that draw you into the hardware store and watches where you use the hammer and knows which hammers your friends have. Like a tech company is a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and, and, and a tech company is a company that makes 11 million hammers per second and then sees which one is emotionally most resonant with you and puts that one in front of you. (laughs) Right. So that's what happens. So you all know when you're watching a YouTube video, you think back to um, most of you would be old enough to remember they used to IBM used to talk about their uh, um, learning computers that would do the AI thing and that could beat you in chess, right? And it was gaming out every possible move to do next, and then figure out the one that was best that it thought of in, during the time it had during its move, and would use that against you. Um, picture that same technology about trying to beat you and outsmart you each turn, but ten thousand times more powerful because computers have gotten more powerful. And being applied to each YouTube video that you watch to decide what should be the next one I suggest to you. And what it's doing is it's running just as many scenarios as a chess playing computer does to say, what is the video that is most going to engage yeah. you? And, you know, I don't think it's quite that many scenarios, but that is what, when you go on Amazon and you buy a hammer and it's in their infinite wisdom, they tell you, do you want another hammer? Right? Like that's what they do. Um, they're, they're trying to get the thing that you're most likely to buy next. And, uh, and it matters because, we rely on each of those parts of, you know, to completely overextend this hammer analogy, each of those parts of the supply chain of building hammers and selling hammers, we reply, we rely on them to be a, a, a gatekeeper and to enforce some level of social trust and expectation. So, you know, I actually end up, I'm a dad, so I go to our hardware store a lot because that's just how you hang out when you're a dad. And so they know me and they're like, see, dad power, you know. You have and so many hammers at home. I do. I'm, I'm yeah, hammer time. So um, I go in and um, I won't dance. And, and we go in and, and they're like, they know me. And they're like, oh, you need this thing. Like, whatever. They, they know, you know, um, this is the kind of like water carbonation system you have. You need the refill thing. And they sort of hook you up. If I went into the same store that knew me and said, I want a hammer and they know what I am. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. We got it. Here it is. Give me the thing. If a stranger walks into that store and is wearing a T-shirt affiliated with a hate group, and we know that there's a rally of that hate group here in New York, as the Proud Boys did a, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and they say they want a hammer, that same person behind the counter, I know them, the smart guy, he's going to be like, I think you're good, buddy. I don't think you need a hammer right now. And what we have done is we have delegated trust to be local and contextual and grounded in our neighborhood and grounded in our community and responsible because he feels that responsibility, right? And so we've integrated the person that builds the hammer with the person that sells the hammer or yeah. the person that markets the hammer, right? And so the tools are all of that together. If we could decouple those things, then we can say, it's not on me. But to the point about like, in a conference room in Silicon Valley, I know the people that made vote with me and they're very well-intentioned. They have great track records. They're good people. I know who wrote the checks to fund it. They're very well-intentioned, smart people. I was at a party with one of them the other night, so... I am part of the problem. And, you know, I was very polite to everybody involved, but I'd read your article as well. And what I imagine happens in that, in that conference room or when somebody's sketching on a whiteboard, oh, well, we want to encourage people to vote. 
Voting is a good behavior. That's our, our values. And therefore, smiley face by people that vote. Why wouldn't you do that? Right? Real straightforward. And there's a couple of interesting things that happen from that, which is, uh, one, it makes clear technology is not neutral because we have baked our values into mm-hmm. this thing. Yeah. Right? We have designed for and And what, what the language of tech is, is uh, engagement. Right? We talk about how compelling, how sticky something is, like all these sort of terminology, which are about essentially how emotionally exploitative they are. Right? And that's how we design everything. I mean, all media is this way. We click bait headlines and, and you know, catchy you know, uh, uh, production titles on TV shows. Like, they're all of the same thing. Like We design experiences that we want to make, it, make people feel good, but they're based on our values. We think this is our aesthetic and we think this is what we want to encourage. And um, you know, I tried the app because I'm a monster who doesn't care about privacy for other people. And so I was like, let me try to vote with me. But I have, you know, I have friends who are undocumented. I have friends that are you know, certain global and um, you know, the results come back as gibberish, right? Or I have people that have the same name as other people. Right? It's like this very, I yeah. know, you know, really unusual data set, I guess. And you reveal the boundaries of what they even assume the use case is, right? With, with who they even assume is in play. Who's a, who's a, who's a person that participates in this system? Um, you know, I have no frowny face for the undocumented folks in my context book, right? Like, I, I think that's not the right response for the app to have, but I understand how they got there. And I think it's a failure of imagination and empathy because of who was in the room building it. Yeah. Right. And, and that's true across all these tools. And I, I've encountered, I mean, give you examples, but I, I, every day I come across ways I don't think of that the things I build and I have a hand in building and I have more power than most. I'm the CEO of a tech company, right? Like I, I'm, like I said, I'm part of the problem, right? So like I have as much power as you can possibly have within the domain of what we do. And every single day there are shortcomings and my own vision of what I think this, the products we build can be that are exclusionary to people that just sell them short, that potentially open up vulnerabilities. And that's after me doing this for, I mean, I've been coding for 35 years um, and I'm not that old. You're 36. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, when I was 36. I still had hair, man. So, you know, like there's a very, um, that, 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 Ability to understand that, like everybody has good intentions. The people we like to, that we like, that we like to hang out with, that yeah. we trust, that we think are good people, can cause the problems. Like there are people who are like bad dudes. You know what I mean? Like there are bad people. There are like it's not a lot of like the mustache twirling villain in tech, mm. but there's some. There are dudes who are just like, wow, that guy's really messed up. Most of the companies you deal with are not. Like I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is malevolent. I think he doesn't know what he doesn't know. You know, if you have like, like as a child of immigrants to be like, you got into Harvard and then you dropped out and your parents didn't kill you. That's <laughs> wild. Right. right. You know, and to be like, yeah, I'm just going to go do this other thing with my friends. And then somebody's going to write me a check for a hundred grand. I'm like, yeah. your life is wild. That is science fiction. Yeah. So of course he's like, things are good. People are generally good. They have been good for him. Like Mark Zuckerberg's life is great. Like I wish that for everybody wouldn't work, but like, that's a great idea. So yeah. then if you, if you, if you've just been sort of charmed, like traipsing along, well, my dad was a dentist and now I'm the richest guy, you know, in, in the history of my hometown and everything's great. Then you don't think of like, and what happens when this <coughs> goes wrong? Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. And when you've lived through being vulnerable, I mean, I look at, you know, we've talked so much about Facebook, but it's all these companies, but it, Facebook is the example that jumps to mind. It's like, you know, they're bored, um, Mark Andreessen's on their board. He's one of their biggest investors. He's one of the most powerful people in Silicon Valley. And Facebook was trying to give away free, free internet access in India, which is to say they wanted to subsidize it so that they could, um, you know, control which sites people go yeah. to. 
um, which is this sort of like, well, you know, rich people don't have to worry about only being able to go to three websites. One of them's Facebook and one of them's Instagram, which Facebook owns. Um, but if you are not wealthy, then this is the, our great generosity. We're trying to do good things. We're good people. We're going to give free, free internet to people in India. And, you know, um, the effects of colonialism in India are living memory. My father was not born a free man. He was born, you know, in, in pre-independence India and he's alive, right? So this is not like science fiction history. This is like his lived experience. And um, so they very understandably like, oh yeah, this whole, like, we're going to give you free infrastructure and everything will turn out fine. Like we know how that went last mm. time when the British showed up, we think we're good. Like you keep your stuff and we'll go to Facebook if we want to. And the activists in India were incredible and they stopped the adoption of this uh, free basics program that, that Facebook wanted to launch. Yeah. And Mark Andreessen's response to that was, among other things, to tweet that um, anti-colonialism was one of the worst things that ever happened to India. And, you know, millions of people died. People in my family died as a result of colonialism, right? There are people that would still be alive today as a result of those colonialist policies. So I thought that his statement was bad. <laughs> I thought that the death of people in my family is a bad thing and that the policies that cause it are bad policies. So I told him that. And um, as is sort of the intellectual positioning of all these guys, they're like, oh, internet outrage culture. Like, I can't believe these people are criticizing me for saying the policies that killed their families bad. So I think, you know, and then you can't say that because then he won't write you a check and fund your company and then you're in trouble. Um, but I did anyway. And, and the interesting thing was their takeaway from that was, uh, one, why is this guy that is on the board of Facebook tweeting? He should have been saying this on Instagram or Facebook, which we own. So like, that's problem one, right? Like this much engagement, like should be happening on our platform right. for our ads. Right. Um, that's the real the problem. Sec- I mean, clearly like that was, I was like, that's a fundamental problem. The second part was, uh, don't have him tweet anymore. So he didn't tweet for a while. He would just like, like tweets from other people that he mm. agreed with. That was his little like signal to people. Um, and that's about it. There's no other accountability. They didn't like, you know, Zuck wrote this sort of, oh, shucks, next time India, sorry about that. Um, and, and that was it, but there's no accountability. Yeah. There's no, um, and tellingly, somewhere around a, a quarter to a third of all Facebook employees are um, of South Asian descent. Yeah. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nobody organized. Nobody said, by the way, my family, we're the ones you're talking about. Yeah. Um, that was a different time. It was a couple of years ago. Maybe this time around, they would have a little bit more of a sort of fear of God of like, wow, if we piss off a quarter of our employees, we yeah. are owned forever. Problem. Right. And like, I, I, I'm hoping there's enough of that sense of, of accountability, but it's, um, it's extraordinary. And, and I mean, the, the, it, it is akin to, um, you know, if somebody here in the States had sort of just blithely dismissed the impacts of slavery you know, so, although I guess that's acceptable these days for those folks too. But I think there's this like, um, I, I, I always feel like a crazy person, right? You know, I'm like, this guy said this thing. Did anybody notice? Mm. You know, and the people around me are like, yeah, we know that's, that's pretty loud. That's egregious. And then you go to Silicon Valley and they're like, yeah, it's tweets. It doesn't count. And I'm like, man, this is, if you say the person that's in control of one of the largest economic engines in the history of the world is saying that colonialism is good and we are a company trying to establish a foothold in the largest democracy in the world in order to grow our business. I'm like, Hey, that's the thing that they just did. It's the, you know, it's like, that's what colonialism is. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not an expert. I didn't go to college, but I know that much. And, and, and it all comes together. Like it's this very straightforward thing where you're like, this is how the problems happen. And then where are the worst abuses of 
you know, Facebook's platforms for misinformation and targeting people's Myanmar, Sri Lanka. It's like, Oh, Hey, it's the thing you were just talking about. I, I, that thing happens. And I mean, there's a million examples, but I just make it visceral and you make it real and you talk about it out loud and they just look at you blankly like, wow, you're really, you're really going to hurt your career doing that. Yeah. I want to, um, before we get to, um, I hope everybody is, uh, thinking about Q&A and asking this panel some questions, um, I do want to talk about what we do about it mm. and come, come out of... Um, all the bad news. Bring all the bad news. So, um, Brenda, that's your job. No press. <laughs> so, Brenda, I, I want you to tell us a little bit about the work that you've done in Design League. And... Um, uh, that story is, uh, full disclosure, really important to me. It's work that you do with, uh, Mouse as an organization, but I think it's also, uh, it is an example of, um, what we do about it. So I, I think your story, having read your, uh, things like your college essay are so important, uh, to me and are the kinds of things that give me hope for, um, what we do about all this. So um, can you share a little bit about the work um, that you've done? Sure. So around two years ago in Moss Design League, me and a group of students created a product called Locus, and basically it was a piece of to, uh, a product that had a GPS. And with the, with the press of a button, it will send your coordinate location to your caretaker to give individuals more independence. And while creating that project and throughout the design, the human-centered design, my passion for technology and being an engineer increased because I was able to like impact someone's life by helping them or something that could help them in their life. So that was like a way where I was able to realize that I am capable and of doing things to help people with the use of technology. Yeah. I think what's really cool, the, certainly the coolest thing about it for me is is being able to be uh, in the office and at, at sites when you guys are doing the work and and actually working alongside end users and actually seeing you're you're part of what happens downstream with some of the product that you're working on as you're working on it. And I think uh, this is happening more and more um, in the the college um, the programs that we're talking about, but not enough. Um, and I think it's really powerful, um, that, that, uh, you know, that, that, as you described it to me was, uh, one of the things that made you want to contribute and, and be, be a creator. So, um, I think that's super powerful. Um, Anil, uh, you're the CEO at Glitch. Uh, you guys have an amazing history of being a, a company that, uh, drives, uh, values with value. Um, yeah, so and I, I wanted you just to talk a little bit about what you're doing in your current role mm-hmm. that uh, changes the paradigm, at, at least at Glitch. Sure. So I, I have to actually, I want to go back to what you said, because I think the best part is you make that thing and you see it has impact for somebody, yeah. right? And that's like, that's where you get up in the morning, that's why you make something. I think that is the grounding for me. I'm lucky to work at a company that has, it was started 18 years ago. So the company's been around a long time and has built a bunch of, apps and tools over the years that people use probably uh, you use stack overflow right have you ever used it for like a question so this is like when, when coders are like stuck they ask each other questions on stack overflow 
that was one of the products that the company made. Uh, another one's uh, Trello, which is like a project management tool. And there's these places that you go and can plan projects and do these things. And it's great. And it's very like, I'm, I'm so like, I, those are, they did before me. So like, I take no credit, but it was like, I, I'm really proud of like, they can build these tools. But the interesting thing about these things is Sacrofill is a community where any coder in the world that gets stuck can look up like an error message, ask a question, say, how do I fix this? And other people answer it for them. And um, it needs to be a little more friendly as a community. It's not always the most friendly. But the interesting thing about it is it's an enormous site. It's probably, it's in the top 50 websites in the world. Like it's bigger than the Washington Post in terms of traffic. It is um, a site with no misinformation. Everybody works together to make sure the information is accurate. It is a site with no mob harassment. Tens of millions of people use the site every month. And there's no Nazis on it. There's no roving bands of horrible people. Um, it's totally doable. It is entirely possible to build large-scale sites that are valuable and useful to people um, that um, help them do their work and help them be creative that are not toxic, right? And, you know, there's, you know, like I said, it should be friendlier and more welcoming, and they're working on that too. So, like, there's all those things to fix, but it's not fundamentally, you know, this negative impact in the world. And and I look at, like, so many of these businesses are, like, you know, one I have no affiliation with, but I look at, like, Slack. And are, are you familiar with Slack, like, a messaging app that people use for Teams? And it's pretty good. And I know the founders of that company for a long time, and, um, you know, it's probably one of the fastest-growing business tools that's ever been created. And similarly, our, our company had formerly made Trello, which is another sort of popular planning tool. These are great tools. They don't make you... Like you control what information you share. They're not doing things behind your back with your information. You understand the business model. Like I put money in and I get a product out and there's not some magical, mysterious, you know, warping of my content happening or like, you know, surveillance of me happening. And that exchange is fair and understandable and people get value out of it and it makes their work better or whatever. Like I don't, I, again, like I feel like a crazy person. I'm like, there are giant companies with billions of dollars doing this over and over and over. And everybody keeps saying, you have to go and do this other thing that's creepy and weird and leads to these negative externalities. Yeah. And so that's sort of the pillar. And that's really what, you know, the, the, the you know, what we do at Glitch is like one learning from that lesson that there are, there are decades of history of building responsible tools and treating people well while doing it uh, and caring about like, you know, I mean, it's not a little thing, but like at our company, nobody has ever paid for healthcare. Like we cover hundred percent of health insurance and all of the, you know, the cost of health. Cause like people should have that. And because software companies, technology companies have the budget to do that, right? The margins on software are very high and there's the money to do it. And so like, there's no reason that that shouldn't be true for all of these technology companies. Yeah. And so like it's connected, like treat your people well, they will make products that treat people well. Be thoughtful about the implications of like, what is your business model? Where is the money going and what control do they have and who owns a piece of the pie and who profits from it? And so we try to own all those pieces and be thoughtful about it. And the end result, you know, for us, like what we do, have any of you heard of Glitch, what we're doing now? Some of you, oh, that's so cool. That makes me happy. Um, you know, we see it as a, a creative community for building apps. And, and, you know, the models we look at are, you know, from a, a creative standpoint, like YouTube is great, right? There's video, like if, if I say, oh, I saw this really cool video online, it had, you know, whatever, a funny cat in it. You don't be like, well, what site was it on, <laughs> right? You just go to YouTube, right? You find the thing. And so it's great that there's a generative community like that. It's, a, it's just terrifying that there's also this algorithm that leads to radicalizing people on the platform, Right. Like we can, we can have one without the other. And so we look at, if we're going to take a community like that and say, instead of a video, the social object is apps that regular people make and that they create and they share and they remix each other's work. And that the algorithms by which we expose content to you or share it with you are visible. 
And if you're a coder, you can look at them, they're open source. You can say, oh, it recommended me this app because this other one was here. It's made by the same person or they're from the same place. And you can see the logic. You can see the, the, the workings of the system and know that you can trust it. And that if we did, God forbid, like actually make it, you know, something that was suggesting content that was going to be upsetting to you or that was going to be emotionally distressing you or lead to you making bad choices, then we could fix it because we could all see it. Right? It's not this sort of black yeah. box. There's no incompatibility between building what we th- hope will be a very large, successful company and being accountable. There, there is no tension there. And in fact, it makes people like us more. It makes like people trust us more. And I, 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 I'm, like, I'm not the only, like, this is not some great epiphany that I had. Every person, we got millions of people that have built stuff on Glitch. They all get it. We got, you know, dozens of people in our company. They all get it. And granted, I think the people I work with are very smart, but we're not like, some genius thing that we saw that nobody else can see, we are going to be able to build a business that is very large by making a place that people treat each other well online. And that idea is not new. It's been there for as long as we've had the internet. It's been there for as long as we have the web. It has been almost erased from history, just as the fact that early social network, social media platforms were often created by uh, teams that were uh, mixed across gender, mixed across race, mixed across all these different vectors. And that was why the platforms were better, like more thoughtful about what they did. And, you know, so we want to be, and this is a hard thing. Is like, I don't like, we're not role models. I'm not trying to be that. Like we're trying to make something good in the world that people feel good about using. But I think the predicate to that is you have to get some of this stuff right. Like what are the odds if we don't have a diverse team that we're going to make a community that's going to be diverse and healthy? Zero. I, I don't think it's possible. And so we have to do that. The predicate to building our, to achieving our goals as a, as a product, as a business, as whatever, is to build a company that is solving these problems internally. And that's hard work. You know, we were a company that five years ago, to an approximation, was like pretty much 100% white men. And, you know, the goal is by the end of next year to be proportional representative on gender and race um, across our whole staff in the U.S. And I think we'll hit it. And it's because we've made it a goal and we want to be accountable to it. I can talk about it publicly as the CEO of the company. Say, if we don't make that goal, it's because I didn't do my job. Just like if we say, I want to have a million apps built on the platform and then we don't hit that number, of course, that's on me. And somehow one of these things, every tech CEO will talk about, right? So if they say there's whatever, 2 million apps in Apple's app store, you're like, sure, Tim Cook did it. Steve Jobs did it. And then Apple says, you know, 4% of our uh, technical staff are black or Latino. You're like, ah, can't, who can, who can say, yeah. who can, who, who's responsible for that? Right. No one knows, right? It's the same dude. It's the same dude. It's the same billionaire dude that they bought a plane for is still accountable, right? It's the same guy. And um, if you said you can't keep your plane unless like, I mean, I, I would wager by the second half of next year, like the like by the second half of 2019, we will hire more black women in engineering roles in our three dozen person company glitch than Facebook will globally. I'll bet you that. And it's you know why? Unfortunately, it's not hard. It's not hard. But I give a damn about it. And I don't think Zuck does. And, you know, I think it's just as simple as that. It's like, all you have to do is set a goal. And like, if we miss and it's a tie, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Great. It's a worthwhile Great. throwdown. Right, right. Yeah. Like, but I would love, I would love for him to mop the floor with yeah. me. I'm and pretty do way sure better. he's going to listen to this. So, yeah. <laughs> 
So I appreciate you mentioning it here. Sure. Uh, Natasha, um, you're doing something about it. You, uh, the New York Times has a pre-college program. Um, you know, one of the stories that you wrote that I read a little bit about, and many of us, I'm sure, have read uh, Harvard and MIT and a few others are, are now working hard to build, uh, well, let me rephrase, are uh, publicizing some classes they're working on um, that are about ethics and, and uh, for engineers specifically. Obviously, I worry that classes like that are not making it to the other 98% of <laughs> universities where, where people go and uh, not to mention, uh, you know, two-year schools and, and these things. Um, New York Times has a pre-college program. Uh, it's pretty committed to bringing, you know, even uh, bringing to, to younger uh, prospective engineers and, and thinking people, some of these skills, uh, a lot of them, they're uh, sort of pre-journalism and, and uh, things. But tell us about the uh, des- decision to design the course that you did and, and uh, why you're leading and teaching it. So uh, news reporters aren't supposed to solve problems, right? We're just supposed to describe. And if you find some bad... <clears throat> You find something bad, like, you know, massive privacy violations, then like the FTC steps in or some attorney general or Congress will pass a law or whatever. But like you're supposed to just explain what's happening. And so I kept seeing this phenomenon where I was interviewing big tech companies and small startups. And as I said, like, I don't doubt that they want to do good, but they seem to lack both a language of moral reasoning and a framework to think about it. And that seemed really weird to me, again, because I used to cover the pharmaceutical industry where thinking about the harms and doing no harm and figuring out what the good is, um, is ingrained in the teaching. And it just was weird to me that this whole piece was missing. And so then I went around and I did a story about how entrepreneurship is taught on university campuses. And I went to these like three-day, you know, um, entrepreneurship boot camps where you had to design an app in three days. And I actually looked at another one, which is like a nine month program where hundreds of students competed to win these contests. And like the first day there's a thousand kids sitting in an auditorium and like the head of computer science and entrepreneurship is standing at the front and says to them, common sense is the enemy of innovation, you know, or at another major school, (laughs) they were like, just innovate, suspend judgment. And I was like, okay, now I understand why there's like this, this thing that's missing. And, and the thing is that I do get it, right? Because if you ask too many questions about, is this going to cause harm and what might this do? Like at the first moment, you're never going to get it, right? So you can't like self-question and not make. But at some point in the making, you do kind of have to answer those questions. You know, like, how is this going to affect not just the people I'm making this for, but for the community and all the other people who are affected. And like, oftentimes I'm writing a lot about education technology and um, I interview teachers and um, some things they love. And then I interview the kids and they're like, oh, really bad for us. So one of them is this app called Class Dojo. I don't know, do any of you use it? Okay, so for those of you who don't, it's a classroom behavior management app and you can award kids points for doing things that are good, like raising their hands nicely or 
handing in their homework on time and you take away points if they talk out of turn or fight or whatever. And so I started this class, which I will get onto in a moment, but one of my students, I asked students to write about one thing that their school uses, one kind of technology and how it affected them. And so one of my students who was in 10th grade wrote this thing about how her religion teacher started using Class Dojo. And whereas before, you know, he would ask people to raise their hands and ask questions or whatever, or answer questions, um, now he would say, you know, raise your hands, and he would get out his iPad and write down who was raising their hands and give them points before he called on them. And um, so there was this mediated weird experience. And she was writing about how students who didn't have anything to say would suddenly start raising their hands because they get points just for raising their hands. Mm. And then other students who like might take really, really good notes but never raise their hands, then they were penalized because they weren't doing something visible that they yeah. could get the score for. And she wrote this essay, and one of the lines she wrote was like, we felt like lab rats. You know, and then I would go back to Class Dojo, and they would say, well, like, you know, we're making this for the teacher, right? The teacher is the customer. This is design thinking. We've empathized with the teacher's pain points, and we have designed this thing to help them. But sometimes your thing affects a whole other universe besides the customer. And so um, I don't think of that as ethics, right? I think of that more as accountability and downstream consequences and sometimes unintended consequences. And they also can't think of bad actors, right? So like most teachers are obviously overwhelmingly great and, and well-intentioned. There are bad teachers. And they can't conceive of, well, what happens if a teacher who is trying to avoid being good at their job, uses this tool, right? Or any discipline, right? We have this in whatever, I'm, you know, I'm making software for auto mechanics. You say, well, how would an auto mechanic that's trying to cheat their customer use this app? And if you want to see people's minds blown, like ask that question of like, what happens when somebody is a bad actor? And they'll just, there's a almost like blanket rejection. Like, no, that doesn't happen. Mm. Right. So if you say whatever, you make a video platform. I mean, I ask this question of our team all the time. It's like, okay, we let people make apps. What's when somebody wants to make an app that does something horrible, like what do we do? And you know, and literally like people are like, Oh, okay, our metrics can't be like how many apps were created today. Right. Because like that's the normal thing you do. So if you're like, we're a video hosting, we're YouTube, how many videos got uploaded today is our measure. Yeah. Like, okay, well, how many of those videos are real? How many of them are generated? How many of them are incredibly disturbing? You know, they call those sort of metrics. Like, ah, that doesn't enter into it. And I think it's it's just such a a common refrain is that um, even again the well intention. I'm sure that teacher meant well, but it was just like, oh, I'm going to be meticulous and do what this software tr- teaches me to do because it rewards them too because of that they got a smiley face on, yeah. the, on the UI. Yeah. And so then you know what typically happens in this process? I call the company. And they're like, oh, we don't understand the question. And then the article comes out and they freak out and hire a crisis communications firm or their VCs (laughs) do. And and then all this other stuff happens. And so um, I was like, well, if I were going to solve this problem, even though I'm not allowed to as a journalist, how would I solve it, right? And so one of the things you could do is you could teach the next generation to ask the questions. Because my perception and my reporting shows that, like, they aren't being taught this at university when they are getting funding for startups, the VCs are not asking them these questions because thinking through the moral reasoning and the potential downstream consequences is not lucrative. Um, and um, I, sometimes they don't even know the laws of the yeah. um, sectors they're working in. And so they're breaking laws without knowing what they are. And like then they get to me and I'm saying, well, what about this law? And they're like, what? Right. So, so I feel like I'm really glad that universities are increasing their CS ethics 
And by the way, they've been teaching ethics for a long time and like philosophy has been doing and history of tech and science, technology, and society and all these things. It's not like they haven't been. And even in computer science departments, there were ethics courses, but until really this watershed year, really didn't seem like a mainstream thing that like they should teach or the students yeah. wanted. However, because we're now teaching computer science, you know, sometimes unplugged in kindergarten, I think that if we're going to wait until kids are first year in college, it's going to be too late. Yeah. Like six years from now or even four years from now, it's going to be too late. And so um, the school of the New York Times is the New York Times summer program for high school kids. And they asked me, you know, if you could create a course, what would it be? And I said, well, I'd like to do a course that it's about like, how do you be an accountable entrepreneur? How do you be an accountable maker? And so the class really involves two things. One, in the mornings, we sort of grapple with these thorny issues like driverless cars or what the impact of Uber is for the labor market or, you know, election interference or YouTube's biased algorithms or whatever. But in the afternoon, they have to design apps. And the grade of the course is based on not how well they've designed this thing, but they have to prove they've thought about the consequences at every step. Data privacy, data security, thinking about the entire ecosystem they're impacting. And um, kids have like taken on really ambitious things. They do it in groups. So one group of kids decided like, well, we should just have online voting, right? We should just have a voting app. Why don't we have a voting app? Mm -hmm. And so then they had to spend a lot of time interviewing people and figuring out that like basically only one country, Estonia, right, has online voting and even that got corrupted and they're in completely homogenous society and they're completely digitized and like, you know, and then they had to understand how the American voting system works. Yeah. And and another group of students where it's like calling 911 is so old, right? Why don't we text 911, <laughs> right? And so then they had to like actually call the 911 people and figure out why it is that we don't and like what the obstacles would be and like what if people couldn't type, right? So, like, would they be leaving out people? How would you get over that? Um, and so, um, you know, and then others were like, well, you know, we could make um, an app where we help people who are, like, new immigrants to this country um, swap working for people, you know, and getting a room in their house. And so then we had to go through, well, like, how do you figure out what is equitable? And if they're undocumented, how do you make sure it's not indentured servitude, right? And so it raises all these questions, but it's sort of like, and also they were banned from like creating food delivery apps, or like, <laughs> right? There was like no mommy apps, mommy feed me, mommy clothe me, mommy wash right. me, right? They had to actually do a health app or an education app or a democracy right. app or like a community app. Um, and so... Um, that is what I do, like, as my side gig. It's, it's not me speaking as a journalist. It's just I wanted to see, like, how could we embed this in the teaching of computer science? Because oh. I think, I mean, we've, we've had talks about, um, you know, should can history teachers teach this in high schools or, like, <laughs> sociology teachers? But, like, the computer science teacher is the person who's revered, right? Yeah. And so if the revered person who is teaching you the thing that enables you to make and solve problems is not the person also saying, hey, let's just think about what the consequences are, then it's not going to get incorporated as something that's important in this process. Yeah. Um, Brenda, I want to give you the last word. Um, do you uh, think about your own participation as a teammate on future projects? Um, do you think you can make an impact on this stuff? You, Keep us responsible and thinking about these issues. 
So I think that in the future, I'll be able to contribute uh, unique ideas and perspectives by considering the user, because it's really important to consider the user since they're the ones that are going to be using something and like... If you feel like you're the kind of person that's going to ask the question, what's up with that? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a lot of hope that you are going to be. No, I just want to say, Brenda, we can't there. wait to see what you make. I know. We're like really excited. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I want to say a huge thanks to CSTA of New York City, to Cornell Tech, to uh, uh, Computer Science for All, the consortium. Uh, you have all been amazing partners in helping to produce this. Natasha, Neil, Brenda... Thank you so much for the time uh, tonight. This has been a huge treat for me. And I think uh, judging by how long folks have stayed with us and super engaged, I think for everyone else as well. So thank you so much. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 